Chapter Four of Mystery of a Handsome Cab by Fergus Hume, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Mister Gorby makes a start. Well," said Mister Gorby, addressing his reflection in the looking glass, "I've been finding out things these last twenty years, but this is a puzzler and no mistake." Mister Gorby was shaving, and as was his usual custom, conversed with his reflection. Being a detective and of an extremely reticent disposition. He never talked outside about his business or made a confidant of any one. When he did want to unbosom himself, he retired to his bedroom and talked to his reflection in the mirror. This method of procedure he found to work capitally, for it relieved his sometimes overburdened mind with absolute security to himself. Did not the barber of Midas, when he found out what was under the royal crown of his master, fret and chafe over his secret until one morning he stole out to the reeds by the river and whispered, "Midas has ass's ears." In the like manner, Mister Gorby felt a longing at times to give speech to his innermost secrets, and having no fancy for chattering to the air, he made his mirror his confidant. So far, it had never betrayed him, while for the rest, it joyed him to see his own jolly red face nodding gravely at him from out of the shining surface, like a mandarin. This morning, the detective was unusually animated in his confidences to his mirror. At times, too, a puzzled expression would pass over his face. The handsome cab murder had been placed in his hands for solution, and he was trying to think how he should make a beginning. Hang it! He said, thoughtfully stropping his razor. A thing with an end must have a start, and if I don't get the start, how am I to get the end? As the mirror did not answer this question, Mister Gorby lathered his face and started shaving in a somewhat mechanical fashion, for his thoughts were with the case, and he ran on in this manner. Here is a man, well, say a gentleman who gets drunk and therefore doesn't know what he's up to. Another gent who is on the square comes up and sings out for a cab for him. First he says he don't know him, and then he shows plain that he does. He walks away in a temper, changes his mind, comes back and gets into the cab after telling the cabby to drive down to St Kilda. Then he polishes the drunk one off with chloroform, gets out of the cab, jumps into another, and after getting out at Pallet Street, vanishes. That's the riddle I've got to find out, and I don't think the Sphinx ever had a harder one. There are three things to be discovered: first, who is the dead man; second, what was he killed for; and third, who did it. Once I get hold of the first, the other two won't be very hard to find out, for one can tell pretty well from a man's life whether it's to anyone's interest that he should be got off the books. The man that murdered that chap must have had some strong motive, and I must find out what that motive was. Love. No, that wasn't it. Men in love don't go to such lengths in real life. They do in novels and plays, but I've never seen it occurring in my experience. Robbery? No, there was plenty of money in his pocket. Revenge? Now, really, it might be that. It's a kind of thing that carries most people further than they want to go. There was no violence used, for his clothes weren't torn, so he must have been taken sudden and before he knew what the other chap was up to. By the way, I don't think I examined his clothes sufficiently. There might be something about them to give a clue. At any rate, it's worth looking after, so I'll start with his clothes. So Mr. Gorby, having dressed and breakfasted, walked quietly to the police station, where he asked for the clothes of the deceased to be shown to him. When he received them, he retired into a corner and commenced an exhaustive examination of them. There was nothing remarkable about the coat; it was merely a well-cut and well-made dress coat. So that with a grunt of dissatisfaction, Mr. Gorby threw it aside and picked up the waistcoat. Here he found something to interest him in the shape of a pocket made on the left-hand side and on the inside of the garment. 
"'Now, what the deuce is this for?' said Mr. Gorby, scratching his head. "'It ain't usual for a dress waistcoat to have a pocket in its inside, as I'm aware of. "'And,' continued the detective, greatly excited, "'this ain't Taylor's work. He did it himself, and jolly badly he did it, too. "'Now he must have taken the trouble to make this pocket himself, "'so that no one else would know anything about it, "'and it was made to carry something valuable, "'so valuable that he had to carry it with him, even when he wore evening clothes. "'Ah!' Here is a tear on the side nearest the outside of the waistcoat. Something has been pulled out roughly. I begin to see now. The dead man possessed something which the other man wanted, and which he knew the dead one carried about with him. He sees him drunk, gets into the cab with him, and tries to get what he wants. The dead man resists, upon which the other kills him by means of the chloroform which he had with him, and being afraid that the cab will stop, and he will be found out, snatches what he wants out of the pocket so quickly that he tears the waistcoat, and then makes off. That's clear enough, but the question is, what was it he wanted? A case with jewels? No, it could not have been anything so bulky, or the dead man would never have carried it about inside his waistcoat. It was something hat, which could easily lie in the pocket, a paper, some valuable paper which the assassin wanted, and for which he killed the other. This is all very well, said Mr. Gorby, throwing down the waistcoat and rising. I have found number two before number one. The first question is, who is the murdered man? He's a stranger in Melbourne, that's pretty clear, or else someone would have been sure to recognize him before now by the description given in the reward. Now I wonder if he has any relations here. No, he can't, or else they would have made inquiries before this. Well, there's one thing certain, he must have had a landlady or landlord, unless he slept in the open air. He can't have lived in an hotel, as the landlord of any hotel in Melbourne would have recognized him from the description, especially when the whole place is ringing with the murder. Private lodgings, more like, and a landlady who doesn't read the papers and doesn't gossip, or she'd have known all about it by this time. Now, if he did live, as I think, in private lodgings, and suddenly disappeared, his landlady wouldn't keep quiet. It's a whole week since the murder, and as the lodger has not been seen or heard of, the landlady will naturally make inquiries. If, however, as I surmise, the lodger is a stranger, she will not know where to inquire. Therefore, under these circumstances, the most natural thing for her to do would be to advertise for him, so I'll have a look at the newspapers. Mr. Gorby got a file of the different newspapers, and looked carefully through those columns in which missing friends and people who will hear something to their advantage are generally advertised for. He was murdered, said Mr. Gorby to himself, on a Friday morning, between one and two o'clock, so he might stay away till Monday without exciting any suspicion. On Monday, however, the landlady would begin to feel uneasy, and on Tuesday she would advertise for him. Therefore, said Mr. Gorby, running his fat finger down the column, Wednesday it is. It did not appear in Wednesday's paper, neither did it in Thursday's, but in Friday's issue, exactly one week after the murder, Mr. Gorby suddenly came upon the following advertisement. If Mr. Oliver White does not return to Possum Villa, Gray Street, St. Kilda, before the end of the week, his rooms will be let again. Rubina Hableton. Oliver White, repeated Mr. Gorby slowly, and the initials on the pocket-handkerchief which was proved to have belonged to the deceased were O.W. So his name was Oliver White, is it? Now I wonder if Rubina Hableton knows anything about this matter. At any rate, said Mr. Gorby, putting on his hat, as I'm fond of sea-breezes, I think I'll go down and call at Possum Villa, Gray Street, St. Kilda. End of chapter 4. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.